Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Seabury Capital Group. Global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com. Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. HotelConnections.com. And Boyd Group's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. Visit AirlinesConfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He is so dedicated to this show that he's joining us today while numb after a dental procedure. It's true. Former CEO of Spirit, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. So we'll understand if you have trouble with a few words here and there, Ben. <laughs> well, thank you, Seth. With Florida having more COVID cases than most countries in the world, I bet he's as happy not to live there as I am. He's NPR's <laughs> here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Man, it really just, uh, you, you can't help but but think about those those people in our case, including not only friends, but, but also family there. Hopefully things will get better soon. But for now, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we're going to tell a long story. And I do mean long, but certainly not boring. You'll see what I mean soon. And just who are all those masks designed to protect? The answer might sound obvious, but a listener has an interesting question. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Time now for that long story. When it comes to airlines and smaller airports that are inextricably linked, it's hard to think of two in America whose histories are more tied together than JetBlue and Long Beach. That's the long part, in California. Long Beach is in the Los Angeles Basin, as it's called. JetBlue has been flying there since 2001. And I mean, for perspective, JetBlue first launched as an airline in 2000. And for much of JetBlue's time in Long Beach, it was either pretty much or truly the only airline there. JetBlue is consolidating its LA area operations over at the main airport, LAX, where To say the least, it will not have the airport to itself. LAX is one of the world's most competitive airports. Lots of demand, yes, but lots of supply too. So JetBlue moves from being a big fish in a small pond to a, well, maybe not a minnow over at LAX, but you get the picture. Now, Ben, as a matter of disclosure, you are on JetBlue's board. I know there are certain things you really cannot tell us right now, even though the show is called Airlines Confidential. And even though you're great about giving us all kinds of inside baseball, that said, I want to talk about Long Beach, just from what we could all sort of observe publicly. Can you tell us a little bit about the airport? I mean, I'll be honest. Look, I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. I've actually been to Long Beach, but I've never flown into the airport. I flew into LAX one time when I had to go to a conference there. I know it's a, a convenient airport for a lot of people, but it, it, it does seem problematic in terms of air service because we've seen airlines come and go over the years, including – Now an airline going after 19 years, very much committed to trying to make it work there. Tell us first about Long Beach as an airport, as an air service market. Well, I have actually have flown in there and it's, you know, a very charming place, actually, the the way a lot of smaller airports can be. And I flew there on JetBlue before I was on the board of the company. 
And it was convenient and the price was right, certainly. But that said, there's just a lot more going on at LAX. And I will tell you why I think this decision was made here. Not because I have any inside baseball on it, because that's not something that a board gets involved with is moving, you know, one city to another. But I will tell you from my days at Spirit, when we moved from Mesa Airport in Phoenix to Sky Harbor Airport. And we went to Mesa, much probably like JetBlue did a number of years ago, and then to Long Beach because it was cheaper than the big airport because it was a little bit out of the way and maybe not quite as much competition and maybe could establish sort of a little, you know, a little protected beachhead there, right? Yeah. And what we found is that Mesa just wasn't Sky Harbor. The traffic there wasn't as large. Not everybody knew where Mesa was. On some sites, if you said, I just want to go to Phoenix, it would show you Sky Harbor, but wouldn't show you Mesa Airport. Or you had to click a button that says show all airports in the region or something like that, right? And so ultimately, we moved to Sky Harbor and found that the modest increase in cost compared to Mesa was overwhelmed by much, much greater traffic. And that's what's happened here. And that's why you've seen other airlines make the same kind of moves at Long Beach. Yeah. Allegiant had the opposite experience in Orlando, right? They were always at Sanford, the alternative airport there. They tried over at the main airport and eventually consolidated back over to Sanford. And they still are at Mesa. So interesting, just kind of different. But maybe that's because, tell me if you think this is right, for them – they're selling flights generally in smaller markets where the destination is Phoenix or the destination is Orlando or Las Vegas or other places. And because they're the only nonstop option from these smaller markets, you know, from Des Moines or wherever to some of these places, everybody knows about Allegiant, everybody goes to their site. And so they don't have that same issue of people just going to Expedia or Kayak or wherever necessarily and, and not thinking to check there. Is that the difference between Allegiant and pretty much every other airline, whether it's Spirit or JetBlue? I think that is right, Seth. And in fact, Allegiant sort of prides themselves in their, you can see this in their investor presentations and things like that, where they always quote the percentage of their flights, which is very, very high, that have no nonstop competition. Because for example, they don't consider Sanford to Providence as competition to Orlando to Boston. Right. They're they're different airports. And so they say we don't have nonstop competition. Also, passengers who know Allegiant and who fly Allegiant know to think to look at the alternative airport because they know that's almost everywhere Allegiant flies. In fact, if you're wondering whether an airport even has service or not, the most likely answer is going to be they may from Allegiant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. I do it all the time. It, it, right. Is there, I think, of some small airport somewhere and, right, does, I don't know, Hagerstown, Maryland have service? The Elm. answer nowadays is yes on a lead. Now, they might at times they've had, you know, well, back in the old days, U.S. Airways to Pittsburgh. I don't know what else is there now. Yeah. With apologies to Hagerstown. But no, the, these days, that is absolutely the case. You know, you, you actually answered a question that I wanted to ask you, but I just want to drill down a bit more. You mentioned that an airline doesn't typically consult with the board about network decisions. And I actually had that on my list of questions I wanted to ask you. So obviously, they're not going to, uh, you know, call board members or ask for a vote to add one route or, you know, make some kind of tweak. So is that true even with something as big as leaving an airport, 
kind of a prominent airport. That's just something where the board just trusts that the people at the airline, that's their job to make network decisions. Do they advise, and I'm not asking you to tell us what happens here, but whether it's a situation like this or when you were at Spirit, does the airline management sort of advise the board, hey, this is going to happen just because it's bigger than a typical just kind of add a seasonal route here or there? How, how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the at Spirit, when I was the CEO and reported to the board, obviously, we never felt the need to sort of bring the board into those kinds of decisions, but we did always feel obligated to update the board on the decisions we made. So if we were adding cities or changing cities or moving airports, we always had an update in our board materials around here are the changes to the network since we last met, and here's the financial reason we made those changes. And we did that, and that was pretty common, and I think it's safe to say that's pretty common practice at most airlines. Okay, so not asking for approval, but always keeping the board in the loop when it's something bigger than just just kind of the real minutiae of, of network planning. Let me ask you this. While we're talking about JetBlue, and this is something every airline is, is dealing with, it must have been a month or so ago where JetBlue announced some interesting network moves, which seemed at the time like moves designed to sort of be nimble and avoid the virus, right? Some Midwest to Florida markets at a time when New York was the hot spot. Obviously, now all kinds of new developments, all kinds of new hot spots, including most prominently Florida, also Texas, Arizona, places throughout the Sun Belt. And so it seems now like the strategy of sort of trying to go where the hot spots aren't is trickier. Uh, So first, I want to ask you, uh, am I right about that? And I'm saying this in the context of airlines recently, a few of them having sort of said that the bookings recovery seems to be stalling, even though we continue to see decent traffic numbers. When we look at the TSA checkpoints and everything, we're setting new COVID era highs. But apparently airlines looking forward have some concerns now with these new outbreaks. Has the world changed again in unhelpful ways based on what we're all looking at right now? Well, I think what we all hear in the media about cases increasing in lots of states and thinking about starting to shut things down again rather than open things up more, you see that effect in people's view of whether they're willing to fly or not. So it is affecting airline bookings going forward. And I think industry bookings, every industry spokesman has talked about this in the media about bookings are weaker and people are looking in the future and thinking maybe we can't add back as many planes. You saw Delta made an announcement that some planes they were bringing out of being grounded are now going back to being grounded, yeah. right? Because it's the same kind of thing. And again, if you think about, you know, you think about travel, Seth, we're in the middle of summer, but it's really the end of summer in terms of people deciding if they're going to fly. There's not a lot of people deciding right now they're going to take a big flying vacation in a couple of weeks, right? Right. They've made that decision already if they're going to make that. So airlines are looking into the mid-August, September timeframe. When I was a spirit, we used to joke that September was the only month with six weeks because it started on April 15th. <laughs> and that, that really... Or on August 15th. Oh, on August 15th. I'm right, sorry. Because, yes, I'm sorry. School, because school in America and so many places start so early now. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, on August 15th. And so, you know, but that point being that when kids go back to school, now we don't know if they're going to go back to school this year, right? But kids going back to school really resulted in a big drop off in traffic. So airlines are now thinking about their capacity plans for that part of the year because it's middle of July. 
you know, you're thinking about how many pilots are you going to need? How many planes are you going to be flying right now? And you combine that with what's going on in all the states and the rise in COVID cases a lot. And it's hard to put a real optimistic spin that you're going to want to fly a lot more in September than you were flying in June. The combination of the natural seasonality plus the change in what's going on in the country. And that's why I think you see these kind of announcements. It's also now just getting closer and closer to that end of September date when the CARES Act money runs out and airlines are going to have to figure out what do they do. And so airlines are certainly talking to their employee groups, probably offering early outs, probably offering the ability to take some leave without pay, but maybe keep their seniority to help to try to mitigate not having to furlough quite so many people when the CARES Act money runs out. They also, like we said in earlier earlier podcasts, there also could be some signaling by airlines to sort of remind the government, hey, you don't want us to furlough all these people. Maybe you should re-up some of this money. Yeah, in fact, even Southwest earlier this week on the eve of the deadline today, as you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening today, it drops Wednesday for employees to accept the early retirement offers. Southwest saying that it can't rule out job losses. Now, it has said that before uh, during this crisis, but sort of indicated, you know, last resort, hopefully not. So I think the fact that it reiterated that trying to get people to accept the voluntary offers, which are more generous than what people would get involuntarily, uh, speaks to even Southwest uh, being more pessimistic. It says that it, it would need triple the volume of passengers by the end of the year of what it has right now to uh, to avoid involuntary job losses. Those would be the first involuntary job losses in Southwest's half-century history. Uh, looking at a, a couple of the numbers, yeah, over the past weekend, as I said, still sort of hitting COVID-era highs, 750,000 or so people going through TSA checkpoints compared to 2.7 million a year ago. So obviously far off uh, normal levels, but far higher. That's 750,000. That's like almost 10 times as many as on the worst days uh, back in April. American Airlines, by the way, also uh, preparing to warn its pilots uh, about involuntary job losses of that, of course, is not a surprise. It is said that would be coming. United had sent out its warning notices to 36,000 employees a week earlier. So maybe here yet another inflection point, and in this case, not a happy one, right? We sort of had what turned out to be the bottom in April, then what seemed to be a slow but sure recovery, and now signs uh, of something else. Signs also in a study by MIT, Ben, of something that a lot of people might think is obvious. The the, the headlines, if that's all you looked at, and, and I'll be honest, that was sort of the first thing I did. Here, here's one headline about it. Filling middle seats nearly doubles airline passenger risk of catching COVID-19, says MIT researcher. And there are all kinds of headlines like that out there. And I sort of thought to myself, I mean, this kind of reconciles with stuff we've talked about with stuff that's been out there. Look, we all know the middle seat is not six feet wide. It's not true social distancing, but hey, it must be better than nothing. And and then if you just kind of looked at the headlines, this study seemed to confirm that, that yeah, it, I mean, it's not only a little better than nothing, it's, 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 it's twice as good to have the empty middle seat as to not have the empty middle seat. But actually when you search, when you do a Google News search, uh, just did MIT Airlines, the very first headline 
says this. It says, much discussed MIT study on airline middle seat risk may actually support view that flying is safe. And then when you click that headline, it takes me on to Forbes and the author is Ben Baldanza. <laughs> so, Ben, we can't read this whole thing on the air here. People can go find it if they want. But but you apparently are the one person who actually took the time to read the whole study. And you came to a different and kind of counterintuitive conclusion that, that, you, that you say is, is right there in the study and that, that you say is a point they actually make. What is that? Well, yeah, I did read this whole study because I saw that article that you saw. And I said, well, wait a minute. It extrapolates and says – if your your likelihood of dying from getting COVID on an airplane is about one in 770,000, but if you don't fill the middle seats, that drops to 100 and 430,000. And I thought, well, that's still like pretty good odds. And, you know, one of the wait, things- Wait, I, wait, wait, say, wait, say that again. So so your odds, just so, just so people can grasp it, your odds of- Well, here's what they did to be fair. They said that the odds of catching coronavirus on an airplane is about 7,700 to one. All right, one in 7,700. And the odds of catching it if the middle seats are empty is only one in 4,300. Okay. And then if you apply the fact that about 1% of the people die, you can multiply those numbers, you know, and say that based on the mortality rate of this virus that we know now, that your likelihood of dying from getting COVID on an airplane because the middle seat was filled is one in 430,000. And I just remembered from my, you know, one of the stupid things I keep in my brain that your odds of getting hit by lightning is like one in 180,000. So I thought, well, it's not, that doesn't sound like terrible odds to me. I mean, if I went to Vegas and they said, here's a 430,000 sided die, go ahead and roll it. And tell me the number you're going to roll and I'll pay you. (laughs) It's like I would need pretty good odds for that, right? So I went back and read the study. And in fact, the professor, Arnold Barnett, who did the study, did a great job. And he did a very interesting study where any sort of uh, quant jocks out there that want to read how he did it, it, it has the, as you'd expect, MIT quantification to it. And he talks about you know, if the seat is filled versus not. But then he caveats a lot and he says, look, this assumes the flight is full. And if the flight is less full, there's going to be fewer middle seats. So the rates aren't as high. And then he goes on to say, when you look at what's happened in June 2020 and the average rate of infection, it looks as if flying on an airplane has no more risk than things we do every day right now. And he says all that in the study. So if you read the study, you get this, I got the sense that it was a very well done academic study that had very reasonable conclusions about what this was. But the way the, some in the media have extrapolated this is, you know, you fill the middle seats and you double the risk of coronavirus. And that's just a little unfair. It's a little uh, playing with numbers a bit, I think. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you fleshed that out because uh, that is one of those things I think a lot of people are asking ourselves, right? I, I, I'm in there too uh, with everybody else, just sort of trying to, to balance, you know, like when people ask me, should I drive somewhere instead of fly? I think we talked about this at, at some point. It's sort of like, well, are you going to drive across the country instead of fly? Because I don't know, 40,000 people a year die in car crashes, right? And, you know, depending on your individual risk profile for this, 
likely that's a poor assessment of risk, but it's tricky, right? And yeah, so people have to have to really do the math for themselves, think about their own risk, and uh, certainly read behind the headlines. Well, Ben, it's time for our first listener question. But first, Seth, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com. Well, to the mailbag now, Joe, who identifies himself as being from the University of South Florida, which I think we mentioned this before on here. Anybody who knows anything about geography uh, knows that the University of South Florida is not actually in South Florida. It's in Tampa. <laughs> West Florida. But anyway, Joe writes, why aren't flight attendants able to see if your credit card went through during flight? Is it true lots of passengers use a prepaid debit card to steal drinks or snacks to capitalize off that situation? This is a great question, Joe. Uh, Ben, I, I know some of this has to do with connectivity. Uh, I don't want to lead the witness here, but I suspect that some of this is getting better. And I also know, you know Joe mentions uh, drinks or snacks, but it goes beyond that. You know, there are airlines on international routes that sell duty free, uh, you know, that sell expensive bottles of liquor or, or jewelry and stuff like that. And there have been instances where people have managed to steal expensive things by taking advantage of what Joe mentions. Well, Seth, businesses call that bad debt, right? When you uh, when you don't get paid for something you sell. Yeah. And the answer to Joe's question, who's, uh, and it is a great question, thank you, Joe, is that it costs something to get that verification. And it costs more when you have to do it sort of wirelessly from the airplane and you need things. So what happens on, in most airlines, and I don't know if this is true on long haul airlines that do the duty free and such, but on most airlines, what happens is the device that the flight attendant stores the information on, as soon as the plane hits the ground, it sends all of that information at that point, because it would be much more expensive for the airline to send it from the air. And some, some may not even have that capability, right. uh, depending on the airplane they're in. Right. So they don't actually make the verification until the plane hits the ground and they recognize that that creates some risk for them. But what does that do? It raises the price for everybody who buys everything. Right. Because the fact is, some of that happens and that's unfortunate. But that's really the reason. It's a technological issue about being able to get the verification through Wi-Fi from the airplane and the expense of that. Both the technology of it and the expense of it is why they wait till they're on the ground to process that information. And my understanding is that it's not that they're truly flying blind, for for lack of a better term, that they do upload like – bad credit card numbers into the systems so that if somebody uses a card that is known to be bad, 
the devices have ways of recognizing that. I mean, it's not that they're truly just processing anything. So in other words, let's say somebody uh, stole a card days ago. They The card was identified as being used fraudulently days ago. When that process happens on the ground, if I'm not mistaken, there's an interchange. It's not just one way. It's not just the you know sending out the transactions. Information is uploaded where potentially they would be able to catch it in flight because of something the device was told on the ground about, you know, a list of bad credit card numbers. It's simply that it's just not in many cases in real time, although I suspect with more and more bandwidth all the time, that's getting better. I think that's exactly right. And you're right. Airlines get stuck with this once in a while, but they tend not to get stuck twice from the same credit card. (laughs) Yeah. And time now, Ben, for passengers behaving badly, speaking of people doing things they shouldn't do on airplanes, right? An Alaska Airlines flight from Seattle to Chicago didn't make it very far before returning to Seattle after a masked man began walking up and down the aisle threatening to kill everyone. Now, in the old days, the mask would have been a giveaway, right, that he was the bad guy. These days, wearing the mask was the only good thing he did. (laughs) If you're trying to read into the man's intentions, well, uh, for the record, he said he wanted to kill everyone, quote, in the name of Jesus. Now, okay, I'm not Christian, but from what I know about Jesus, I don't think that exactly aligns with his character. Uh, in any event, passengers, including an off-duty cop, subdued the unidentified man who was taken into custody when the plane landed. But a very much identified man, Ben, is accused of behaving badly too. He didn't threaten to kill anyone, but on the other hand, he wasn't wearing a mask. Photos circulating online show U.S. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas not wearing a mask aboard a flight, also not wearing a mask in the gate area where one is required. He was reportedly flying on a regional jet operated for American Airlines from Houston to Dallas. The onboard photo does show him holding a to-go coffee cup kind of out in front of him while he's looking at his phone. Now, you're allowed to take off your mask to eat or drink. Yes, this is the era we live in, Ben. You can look at the photo and use your own judgment regarding whether he was complying with the spirit of the policy or only the letter of the policy. American Airlines, by the way, says that it is reviewing the incident based on at least uh, on those photos that it has now seen. Ben. (laughs) Well, fascinating. It reminds me of... You, did you ever watch the original Twilight Zone, Seth? Did you ever like look you know, that I up didn't. on Sci-Fi I'm Channel not, or anything like that? I'm just like not that? a sci-fi guy, but well, yeah, no. You know, it, it, this almost would be like the, the kind of thing that happened in that show all the time, where somebody wishes for something and then they realize that that wish could be interpreted in a different way. So this is like somebody wishing, I wish everyone on the plane would wear a mask. And then they get this guy, right? Who says, where's the mask? Because I'm going to kill everyone. Right? <laughs> It's like you got your wish. He wore the mask, right? Uh, so that that's crazy, obviously. And that that's a person who has obviously issues beyond mask wearing on the plane. And I'm glad everyone from that plane is safe. I yeah. will say, Seth, it's, and it's good for our listeners to know this, that when an airline has to land a plane at a different airport than it was going to, especially if it has to turn around and go to the origin airport, it's not only incredibly disruptive to all the other customers on that plane, it's also really, really expensive. And so so what I hope is that Alaska goes after this guy and says, look, we, we've got to take care of all the customers who got disrupted because of you. And by the way, you cost us these tens of thousands of dollars. 
And they probably won't do that because it would be bad press for them. But in a case of somebody just their behavior forcing them to do something like that, which I'm sure the crew did the right thing and they kept everybody on that plane safe. I'm sure it was a very threatening situation. As far as Ted Cruz goes, I hope he was just drinking the cup of coffee and they snapped the picture (laughs) while it was gone. You know, it's funny when, when I've been on a plane in the last couple of weeks and I want to get a drink, I'm very paranoid. I sort of pull the mask down, take a quick drink and put the mask right back up. (laughs) And and it's almost like one hand's on the mask and one hand's on the bottle. So people think, Hey, no, he's not really taking it off. And so uh, I don't know. I I don't know. Ted Cruz, there's things I like about him. Like, he went to Princeton where I went. That's kind of nice. Right? And I guess yep. he's a good debater. All right. But there's other things I don't like about him that much. Right? But I, I certainly hope he's certainly smart enough to know that wearing a mask in, in the gate area and on the airplane is the right thing to do. And I hope that when American investigates this, they find out that he was complying not only with the letter, but the intent as well. Me too, because yeah, you're right. Nobody ever accused him of being too stupid to to know better. Well, (laughs) up next, we've had corrections before, but never before has Ben made a mistake as inexcusable as this one. Is that sarcasm in my voice? I don't know. It's that plus fine or wine when Airlines Confidential returns. Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or Whine is coming up. But first, let's go back to the mailbag. A correction here from Justin in Massachusetts who writes, Love your show. An FYI for you. You, that would be you, Ben said IAE was Pratt Rolls and two other smaller players. Uh, this was in a segment last week. This is be talking here about the uh, comparing the the engines and how do airlines pick engines and all that. There's actually three other players. Justin says that's where the V and V2500, that's the model number, comes from. It is a Roman numeral 5 for the five companies. Cheers. Ben, how could you forget that in 1983, Fiat Avio, so it's Fiat, you know, which like the automaker, which later became, you know, merged with Chrysler, uh, was the fifth partner in that joint venture. It, it left early on, even though its successor company, Avio, is still a supplier to it, all that according to the, the entry here on Wikipedia. Ben, you must be hanging your head in shame. Yes, that's exactly right. I am hanging my head in shame, not only to be corrected on such an important point, but the fact that I, I kind of knew it was five and I said more. <laughs> ben, you cannot get anything past our listeners. Can you believe? I mean, I just listened to you and nodded. Oh, that sounds right to me. But here's Justin just 
shouting at the radio when he hears that. And thank you, Justin. But you for, know, you know, but I did learn our, from Justin as toes. well. I did learn yeah. from Justin because I didn't know that the V and V2500 referred to the five companies. I didn't either. And it's I, true. I saw, yeah. I had no idea. It's there online. And so, uh, yes, you learn something new every day, especially when you host a podcast that has listeners as astute as Justin. Thank you, Justin. Dan in San Diego writes, I'm a week behind, but I am surprised no airline has taken the stand that passengers must wear masks in order to protect the crew. You are doubtless familiar with Richard Branson's statement about employees being the most important component of the business, and I agree. Masks do not protect the wearer nearly as much as they protect those around the wearer. Do you agree that airlines' initial reluctance to enforce masks and their later inconsistent enforcement of mask requirements is a serious abrogation of concern for crew safety? A loaded question, I admit, but perhaps not in the eyes of the crew members. Now, first of all, Ben, I do think airlines now have said for the safety of passengers as, as well as crew. I feel like that is very much a, a, a part of the messaging. So there's a few different things going on here. And then the, the inconsistent enforcement, generally speaking, seems to be getting better. Clearly not perfect. Just ask the guy who took the picture of Ted Cruz. <laughs> if in fact Cruz wasn't you know, really drinking coffee. Uh, but, but as for sort of what went on early on, uh, look, there's no question that airlines were telling people employees not to wear masks uh, early on in this, just like supermarkets, uh, restaurants, not all of them, but I mean, you, you know, clearly that was going on. They were saying don't wear masks at a time when the public health guidance was still not to wear the mask. Now, it, it's touchy for sure, because the difference is I, if I was just, you know, on my own could decide to wear a mask anyway, which later turned out to be a good idea. Whereas an employee at an airline or, or anywhere where their employer is telling them you can't wear the mask didn't have that freedom, right? And, and, and we now know that even if that was based on the guidance at the time, that was a, you know, it was just a bad decision. So Dan, as he says, a loaded question, but I mean, he's not the only one asking this. How do we reconcile all this? Again, recognizing it's not just an airline question. It was just lots of businesses who sort of felt as I'll tell you, a supervisor at an airline said to me, he said, eh, the, back then he said, yeah, the mask doesn't look good with the uniform. And that was kind of the way you know, some of these businesses were seeing it, that it was a bad look, something now they must regret. Well, I don't think to to Dan's point, which is a really good one, I don't think it's a serious abrogation of concern for crew safety. I think airlines do care a ton about their crews. And thankfully, I don't know of any situations where crew members have have gotten sick because they were told by their airline not to wear a mask. Maybe that's happened. I just don't know that that's happened. I think what's happened here, Seth, is, you know, just such fast changing guidance. You know, you can go on YouTube and find from literally just single digit weeks ago, Anthony Fauci saying, unless you have serious symptoms, you shouldn't be wearing a mask. You can see the CD saying it's not necessary to wear a mask unless you're symptomatic. And we've all learned now that we're all much safer when we do wear masks. And as soon as the guidance changed to masks aren't important, to, you know, masks matter, airlines very quickly supplied all their crews with masks and required their crews to wear masks. And I think there was a concern by businesses 
and people like Anthony Fauci, in fact, early on, that if lots of people were wearing masks, it would incite anxiety and it would create what they felt at the time was unneeded anxiety about the risks of this virus. Now, as we've all learned, we did need to be anxious about it and we do need to wear the mask. And now you get anxious if you see someone without a mask. But at the time when not a lot of people were wearing masks, I think there was concern that, look, if we have all these people in masks, are we going to make them think, hey, maybe I should be wearing a mask. And is there a problem with this airline? Because the crew's all in masks when everybody else isn't. And I think airlines and all businesses were concerned about that issue too. And so as the guidance has changed, airlines have adapted very quickly. And I think they can be proud of that. I understand why Dan might be concerned about did did airlines put any of their crews in unneeded danger? And that's certainly possible, but no difference than any of us who were in unneeded danger when we went into a restaurant without a mask at the end of March. Yeah, good point. And there was also that concern about people running out and getting masks that should have been in the hands of of hospital workers, for example, that sort of thing. There was concern at the time about perhaps a false sense of security. Remember, this was, as you said, some, some of the best minds in the world who thought that masks didn't provide much protection. And what they worried about was that if that were true, we now know it's not, But if that were true, as Dr. Fauci and others believed, then uh, it could create a false sense of security where people put on the mask and they use that in lieu of social distancing and and the other measures, which, which they still don't recommend. I mean, it starts still with, hey, take all the other measures too, stay six feet apart and wear the mask, not either or. So yeah, you just kind of have to put yourself in, in the mindset back then and in retrospect, no question, a lot of us um, put ourselves in, in situations that we're, we're lucky today, <laughs> frankly, those of us who are okay. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Fine or wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations, with every airline looking for ways to save some costs, give Hotel Connections a call and they can help figure out how to do it with crew hotels. Visit hotelconnections.com. And a reminder that the International Aviation Forecast Summit is on the 23rd to the 25th of August in Cincinnati. It is happening. Ben, no turning back for you and I. We have our plane tickets. That's that's true, right? Well, I guess nowadays it really is turning back because airlines are so flexible (laughs) to buy a plane ticket. (laughs) But anyway, we have them. We're going. We're going to do the show from there. AC1550, AC1550 is the promo code for the lowest rate. You can find banner to click through on our site if you just go to airlinesconfidential.com or you can google the international aviation forecast summit there is by the way now a virtual option so so for people who just don't want to go for whatever reason obviously there are people who are going to make that kind of choice this year there there's a virtual option you can get all the content it's maybe not as good as being there in person from a you know networking standpoint and not to mention it's a lot of fun but but look it's there are people who don't want to miss the content but can't be there and you can consume the content that's on the website too so all kinds of options well beginning our initial descent on today's show 
it's time for fine or fine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. Alex of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is complaining about Delta. Alex writes, I had a flight booked about a month and a half ago from Houston to Harrisburg, and just six days before, Delta emailed me asking to get it rescheduled. I tried without success to book another flight on Delta Airlines' website because no flights were available. I couldn't schedule outside of my time frame since I was flying for my son's surgery. I then asked Delta to refund me to book with another airline. No response to my three emails and complaint filed. And the worst was I couldn't reach anyone by phone, chat, or email. I finally drove 3,000 miles round trip to get there because it was too expensive for me to book in that short a period of time. I strongly do not recommend this airline. Hmm. So you see it happens with, with all airlines. Uh, Delta is one that... Has a lower rate of complaints in general than uh, than other airlines. You know, Southwest would be another one of those that doesn't get as many complaints per capita as others. But these things happen. So I guess you have two things here: you have the cancellation, Ben, and then you have this this communication issue that that Alex alleges. Yeah, that's right. And I understand the cancellation. And I don't know exactly when this was written, but I'm guessing the cancellation might have been COVID related early on. But no way to reach the airline. Uh, because of that, I've got to go with the customer on this point. Delta is generally much better than this. And he says chat, email, or phone, which tells you he was looking at all options. All I can think is they must have been overwhelmed at the beginning of some of these cancellations. As you remember well, Seth, and many of our listeners do, I'm sure, traffic fell off the cliff, right? And all of a sudden, airlines were in position of, oh, my God, all these flights we have booked in the next couple of weeks, we got to start canceling lots of these. And I'm sure it just overran the call lines and even the websites and things. That said, the fact that this guy had to drive 3,000 miles round trip, I certainly wouldn't want to drive from Houston to Harrisburg. That's really unfortunate. And I'm sure that at some point, I hope that Delta gets back to him and at least refunds him for that ticket, even though that refund probably won't pay for all the time and gas he had to use to get to Harrisburg that way. I feel bad for this guy. It's not normal for any airline, and Delta's usually pretty good at this sort of thing. But in this particular case, I got to go with the customer because if he couldn't get a hold of him, what else could he do? Yeah, exactly. Well, on final approach, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please. Fastener seatbelts and ensure seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked position. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And hoping you all wear your masks and are staying safe. I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.